Good morning. Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. My name is John Duval, and I am sitting here today with Paul Adams and Tom Thornhill, Michael Davis, Brian Haynes, and I think that's it for this morning. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for our weekly discussion. We do this every, every Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. And we are currently in the course of studying through Romans. And so if you'd like to participate in our study today, we invite you to do that. Uh, matter of fact, let me turn this over to Paul. And Paul, if you would, let everyone know how they can participate in today's study. Absolutely, John. Uh, there uh, are several ways. If you're on the uh, YouTube, uh, you can look for Truth Factor Live. Same thing on Facebook, same thing on Twitter. Truth Factor Live. Uh, if you want to send us a, a message through any of those means, you can do that. And we'll try to take your comments and questions on the air. You may want to send us an email. And if you'd like to do that, it's at questions at truthfactor.com or any of our first names if you wanted to address us individually. Paul, John, Mike, Brian, Tom. Uh, at truthfactor.com and would be happy to take your, your comments and questions there. So uh, also we really appreciate it for those of you, especially on the YouTube, that you would uh, subscribe to us and that you would click the notification bell. And that way you can know whenever we go live, whenever we're online, it just give you a reminder. It won't hassle you to, uh, to follow us, but uh, plus the subscribers uh, help us with uh, dealing with YouTube. So that's all. All right, Paul, I appreciate that. All right, so let's go ahead and we're going to be beginning in Romans chapter 12 and I'll turn it over to Brian. And Brian, if you would kind of let us know where we're picking up and um, I'll go ahead and see if I can grab the document and bring it forward so it might take me a moment and we can bring in whatever comments uh, you would like to reference from last week. Thank you very much, John. So uh, we started off last week in Romans chapter 12. We had a technical difficulty, which sometimes happens now. And uh, that prevented us from getting everything we wanted to get in. Uh, we also were kind of running out of time, so we didn't expect that we would be done with this. As a reminder, Romans chapter 12 has begun our conversation about the practical aspects of being a Christian. And Paul began by calling this being a living sacrifice. And that kind of frames nicely the things that we're going to be talking about now what it means to be a living sacrifice. Now, we had brought ourselves up uh, in our conversation up through verse 8. And we've been talking about the gifts that were given. Just as a reminder to you, we said there were three different kinds of gifts. Uh, there were the miraculous gifts that were only temporary. There are gifts that we have that are natural abilities that we're born blessed with. And then there are those gifts that we develop within ourselves. Gifts like the, the servants of the church or, or the like. So we talked about how that is the case that we see different kinds of gifts. And, and we see at least two kinds of those gifts still present today. Now, we had brought up a chat question, and the chat question, I think, was a very important one for us to consider. How does someone determine what their gift or ability is? In other words, of those last two things, uh, those natural talents that we have or those, uh, those developable gifts that we have, how does somebody determine that? I think that's a very important question for us to consider. It's a question lots of people ask me. Hey, Brian, what do you think my gift that I can serve the Lord is? And how can, I, how can I apply that to myself? So that was an important question. We had some great answers, and they were good enough that we copied them and saved them from last week. So we want to throw those out here now. We've got three different answers uh, to that question. The first answer in the order that I have it down is from Dan Gatlin. And Dan Gatlin says the following. He says, 
in part by self-examination to determine what our abilities are. Uh, that idea of self-examination, uh, Dan, it's, a, it's an important point. So first of all, by self-examination to determine what our abilities are. That doesn't mean we bring any ability or gift to the church, only those that are defined by scripture, but also those gifts we develop. And he points us over to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, which talks about adding to our faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, you know, those things that we develop. Um, what Dan's point is important is to say that just anything we're good at might not be something that is going to be practical or useful in serving the Lord. And, and there's a little bit of an important point to understand. And, and Dan, uh, you need to be here to clarify because that, that's, a, uh, that's a, certainly a specific statement. You know, when is it uh, something appropriate? When is it not? And, and we'd like to have everybody ask you that just, just for the sake of uh, our avoiding the controversy of it. But it is an important point, and we appreciate that, Dan. And it was a great comment uh, for us to consider that uh, we not every gift is our ability is something necessarily that transmutes over. Now, we have a second comment here from Gregor Hinckley. Gregor says, if you do what you love within God's will, is that not a gift? The secular, if you, uh, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day is true for the Christian life as well. And you can't separate yourself from Christian life and your secular. Uh, Gregor, I think one of the interesting points you bring out there is, is that we're told in places like Colossians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5 that whatever we're doing, whether it's in word or in deed, we're doing it in the name of the Lord. It speaks about our labor for uh, our earthly masters, our employers, and, and all the different things that we do. And, and one important point is we can glorify God by having a specific type of behavior Paul's going to come back to that, by the way. Paul, uh, in Romans chapter 13, will consider that idea, the idea of how it is that we're called to a specific kind of service and devotion uh, to the world around us in Christ. And, and Gregor, you're bringing up a good point to say that in our service to our earthly masters, we have the ability to glorify God, too. Uh, finally, we had a comment from Brian Stamper, who said, very broad topic, finding self's true process of giving upon earthly process of being here, uh, then of a heavenly nature. In this experience of life, our transcendence upon birth is perhaps trying to find, and I think that should be our true purpose. So, you know, he just kind of makes the point to say that one of the hardest questions we have is how do we find our purpose? That that, he kind of points out, almost seems to be a big part of the of the meaning of life. And, uh, you know, it's, it is something to say that, you know, if we can understand that the true purpose of a person is to glorify God, that God put us upon this earth to his praise and to his glory. Ephesians chapter one talks about that, uh, that, that we need to pursue that and find that the word of God says that God put us here, that we might, uh, I like some of the language Paul uses in Acts 17, that we might grope uh, for these things, that this is all important. So those are the comments that we had last time. And that brings us uh, up to, uh, up to where we want to be this morning, which is uh, beginning at verse nine. And, uh, as far as verse 9 goes, I'm trying to see who I didn't write down who would read that for us. So I think I will throw it to Mike. You're the closest to me on my screen anyway. So Mike, would you do us the honor of reading Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 21? And John's going to throw us a chat question in there uh, while we're doing this. So Mike, whenever you're ready. My pleasure. Thank you. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that what is cling to what is good be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence 
fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing for for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate that. And uh, we're going to put a chat question for you to consider now. And that question is this. Can a Christian desire legal justice? Um, and let me clarify what that means, uh, to seek legal protection. For example, if somebody breaks in your home and, and steals something from you, can you call the police? Can you, uh, somebody damages your car, can you uh, have a lawsuit? How do those things work? And at the same time, obey the command not to seek vengeance. What do you think? Um, are, we, are we breaking that command if we call the police, if somebody does damage to us, or if we uh, uh, file an insurance claim in a car accident? Uh, what, do, what do those things mean for a Christian? I want you to think about that. That's an important application question to the points that we have, and uh, tell us what you think. So as we look at this passage that Mike just read for us, one of the very first things it says here, as it, as it kind of goes on to talk about that Christian life, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Well, that kind of struck me interesting, um, the idea of love being without hypocrisy. Well, I guess my first question I thought was, how can love be hypocritical? How can love have hypocrisy if we're supposed to love without hypocrisy? And I'm, I'll turn that over to the panel and uh, have you guys tell us uh, what are your thoughts. Well, I'll use my wife as an example, if I may. If I tell her I love her, there's many times she'll just look at me and say, I'd rather see it than hear it. And I think that's the answer to your question, Brian. Sometimes too many people just nod their head in agreement. They smile. They, they show some affection of some kind. But inwardly, their heart isn't involved in it in, in its reality at all. That's why the Lord knows, and we, we need to understand that we can't fool him. The Hebrew writer said that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If our love toward one another is not genuine, God knows it. And there again in Hebrews 13.1, we're to let brotherly love continue. It can't continue until it first exists, and the only way it can exist is to prove it. That's a great comment there, Mike. Um, Tom, what do you got for us? Yeah, uh, in addition to that, uh, uh, if you have ulterior motives with what you're supposedly showing love to somebody, you know, there's a lot of people that do things that we might define as acts of love, 
but there's something in it for them. Uh, there's some ulterior motive behind it. And, uh, and uh, that makes it hypocritical. Uh, Paul, what do you got? Uh, I was thinking about, uh, you know, the different words, different translations where this word is used uh, or how this word is translated in this passage. You know, the, the King James uses the word dissimulation. That really cleared it up for me. <laughs> uh, but when I think about that, I looked up just some of the definitions of this. And one of the definitions is unpretended. And so the words that the other guys have used, sincere, uh, no ulterior motives, it's an unpretended kind of, uh, kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a real good point. Uh, um, you know, uh, I, I had to look at that to see that term. I didn't remember or see that before. So <laughs> dissimulation. Um, you guys have any other thoughts to add? Anybody else has something to, to put in there? If not, so let's, uh, as we go through here, and he talks about, you know, this way that we give honor and preference to one another. Mike reminds us, uh, Romans chapter 13 really is still a continuation of these thoughts, and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll make a big point about this. I was wondering about verse 11, and what do you guys think about verse 11, where he talks about, and I'm reading, the New King James says, not lagging in diligence. Uh, the New American Standard says, um, not lagging behind in diligence. I think, uh, I have down, uh, this is the King James says business. Um, th there's different ways that that term is referenced, not lagging behind. What what, what does that mean? Uh, those different ways of putting that. Anybody have a thought uh, about that? What does it King mean? King James uses the word not in? slothful. Okay. King James uses the word not slothful in business. And of course that comes from, from the animal, the sloth, that is just absolutely so slow and ponderous and lazy and carefree and even expects others to feed him while he hangs Hang on up. just a minute, Jared. Uh, we, we need to understand that being a Christian is I not something sitting at the table with your Bible open and a notebook and a pencil in hand. Christianity is getting out of the kitchen, out of the vineyard of God, out into the world, John's bringing our comments in for us. Um, oh, okay. I, I wondered we got. <laughs> yeah. John, yeah. John doesn't know he's not muted yet. So hey, we'll, John, uh, you're not muted. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know it, but yeah. uh, we don't have the ability to mute him. He can mute us. John has all the power in this program, by the way. So if you've ever wondered, we're, we're well, merely lackeys and serfs to his, uh, to his will is electronically. I'd like to make just an observation while we wait for John. And that is, uh, I just love when Paul does this, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, he does this rapid fire uh, kind of instruction. Uh, if you notice all the, the uh, I'm not sure they're all even sentences, just clauses uh, that he throws out there for us. Uh, he does a similar thing in uh, with the Thessalonians and First Thessalonians, mm -hmm. that book. Uh, but as you look at this, uh, love without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, kindly affectionate to one another. Uh, honor giving preference, not lagging in diligence. Just, uh, I, I like that because as he's kind of, uh, well, we're not to the end of of, Corinth, of uh, Romans here, but it's just sort of this big uh, boost of uh, machine gun firing away of commands. And I think it's really effective to say, hey, uh, here's, uh, you've got a lot to do. And here's the kind of things that you ought to be busy with. 
That's that's excellent, excellent point. Uh, I know we got a call coming in for verse 16, so we're going to try to to move up to there. But anybody else have a thought about the idea of being uh, uh, of lagging in diligence or or uh, like I said, that I love the New King James slothful in business, the idea of, of what it is. I was looking at the word there in Greek, what it is that you're obligated to do. Don't delay to do it. And I just think that's such a neat, neat idea there to consider. Um, so as we kind of move on here, hey, uh, you know, Brian, uh, oh, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I, I will say real quickly, uh, a lot of the things that are dealt with here are very fundamental. I, I mean, yeah, he's dealing with practical things that we do and, and applications. But they are fundamental. Uh, I, I've always thought it interesting, uh, verse 10, where he talks about, in honor, you give preference to one another. And I think that applies to the diligence that we're dealing with here. I think there's an alternative reading to that, outdo one another, uh, uh, you know, in these things, or I guess outdo one another in love or whatever that means. And obviously, it's not saying it's a competition. But, but the point is, is let it be about the other person, not about yourself, and uh, be diligent as you're doing it, which, which goes back to the unhypocritical. I think that that without hypocrisy, I, I think that's the general statement that is that fits on top of all of these. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. Uh, uh, anybody else have a thought to, to draw with that? Uh, you know, I was thinking about what you said there, Tom, and the idea of trying to outdo one another. And and I can't help but to wonder if maybe there there is a sense of a competition uh, that might be present too. the idea that, you know, this is the you know, this is the effort that we're making. Each one of us is trying to to outlove the other. I mean, that might that might actually be a kind of a, a point worth considering. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't don't let somebody love you more than you love them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I mean, that's kind of maybe uh, something we think about, you know, that that it really. And as you said, Tom, it's right. It, it truly isn't a competition, but maybe there's a competition mindset that we can put on here. And that would be a yeah. good application. Yeah. I have a question about verse 13. Um, so when it talks about distributing to the needs of the saints, now we know that that's also one of the purposes of the church. Is there anything here that, that helps us to understand whether we're talking about the church or, or the individual Christian? And, and if, if we're making a distinction, which one kind of has a priority? What do you guys think about this in regards to the individual Christian? That's a difficult question. If you look at Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10, you find the proof that a lot of these things that Paul mentions here are individual acts of the Christian and acts of the church as a body. And yet at the same time, we find numerous times where brethren in various congregations sent financial assistance to those in Jerusalem, Judea, so that we know that that's scriptural. It went to saints, not just a general population of people. It went to those that were members of the church. But in answer to your question, uh, Brian, I'd say at this particular, it's both. You can't, you, you can't have the church collectively without having individuals, one and another, together to do these things. And if I have opportunity to distribute to one of the saints or to a family of saints, then I can do that. By the same token, if it's beyond my individual means, then the church needs to help those saints. I believe the key word here is saint, uh, not just a general individual out here in the world is down on his luck. I can do that personally, but the church isn't to be involved in that. That's the church's work to help uh, needy saints. Then when you look at the word hospitality in that same phrase, you see the word hospital. 
Well, there's people that have various and sundry needs. If I have an ability to help that particular spiritual health problem, I'm obligated to do that as well. Good point. Yeah, you you know, I, and and I, I agree that uh, obviously, primarily it's dealing with the individual, but can't all of these qualities or shouldn't they all apply to us as the church when we are together? I, you know, I, I mean, they just describe the attitude that we ought to have as the church. Uh, you know, I mean, think of this present distress that we're dealing with. Uh, and, you know, you know, obviously, if this is recorded and watched a year down the road, you know, we're, we're dealing with this coronavirus and it's causing congregations to change the way they do things, to, to, to rethink what we're doing and so on. And, and, and one of, the, one of the factors, and I think one of the prime factors that we ought to give consideration to is loving our neighbors and loving our brethren. And uh, that has to do with all these attitudes. And, and you can see the adjustments that are being made, keeping these things in mind. Do you guys think that there's an ability for the church to show hospitality? Or do you think that that is only uh, for the individual Christian? Well, is benevolence also hospitality? Well, so the word hospitality, uh, xenophilos, uh, usually comes to the idea of the, the love of the stranger. So yeah. what do you think? If that, if so I guess you can define hospitality a couple of ways. Some people say yeah. it's the open door. It's the open home. Um and if that's how we look at the word hospitality, can the church have an open home to anybody? And we would say, well, not necessarily. Well, Brian, uh, again, I think that's the, the, answer, the answer has to be in looking at the example the Lord said. The Lord had sent his apostles originally just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, told them, don't you go to the Samaritans, don't you go to the Gentiles. And yet we find Jesus going to Samaritans and Gentiles. After the beginning of the church, we find that there was still this reservation as to whether the gospel was intended for just the Jews, or could it be for Gentiles also? And obviously, Peter at the house of Cornelius proved that it was indeed for Gentiles, so it's for all men. Now, I, I look at the gospel as being the greatest need for all of mankind. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Well, if they're lost because someone hid the gospel from them, who, what will God do with those that have the gospel and did the hiding? Is that not a lack of hospitality? So that if an individual, James 1 talks about it, if an individual comes in, or James 2 rather, comes into our assembly, wearing fine clothes while well, we're great acceptance of that individual but if it comes into our assembling wearing rags and and gum boots and obviously hadn't seen a bar of soap in a couple of weeks we're kind of offish about it usually we, we'd rather he'd sit back in the vestibule and we'll put something around him so he doesn't soil the carpet well i i kind of get on that bandwagon and simply say that fellow's welcome to sit with me and i'll help him learn what he needs to learn that's my definition of hospitality from the church. So that's a great point, Mike, to use the idea of the gospel is the is the food or the need which the church is able to fulfill. And, and uh, so that's now, a great point. A lot of these guys are coming for a dollar bill, you know, 
a dollar bill is not going to save their soul. Will I feed them? I've bought a lot of $5 McDonald meals for people. You know, I've done that. By the same token, the greatest thing that I can do is show them Christ. The old Indian statement was, you know, if you give a man a fish, you fed him for a day. If you teach him to fish, you fed him for life. Well, why can't I give people a morsel, at least, of the gospel of Christ and show them how to gain a meal from it? That's a, that's a really good point. Um, John, what do you got for us? Well, I'm looking at this from a little bit different standpoint, um, especially the idea of strangers. I'm thinking about uh, John in his um, second or third letter. Um, the, the idea that sometimes when Christians were traveling, you would open them up and give them a place to stay and you could bid them Godspeed, you know, on, on their way as the expression goes. Um, but what I'm wondering is, Consider an example to your question, um, and some may disagree with this, so we'll, we'll throw this, we'll run it up the flagpole and see how many people shoot it down. But let's say for the sake of argument, there's a tornado that comes through, I'm gonna use Edmond, Oklahoma, and we find out that several of our members have lost their homes. Well, how could the church show hospitality to them? In that case in point, we could open our building up, set cots up, let them come in, spend the night there, spend a couple of days there if necessary, because we've got the facility. What if there was someone who wasn't a member of our local congregation, but who was also a Christian coming through the area, maybe traveling through someone, maybe they you know, found themselves here unexpectedly. There'd be another way that the church could show them hospitality and it would be out of the collective working of the local church in the use of the building. It wouldn't be the case in point, someone who was not a member of the body of Christ. Um, I started to throw that out there as a possibility of a way that we could collectively show hospitality. Now, ideally, it'd be better for members to open their homes up, obviously. But if you all of a sudden found three families without a home for a period of days until they get to a, a motel, let's say, you know, might be something to consider. Again, and that's John at Truth Factor. Truth Factor, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah John, no, you know, John kind of bringing up there, though, is the concept of, of the expedience of hospitality. So um, nobody mentioned it, but in Romans chapter 13, the commandment for hospitality there, uh, the context actually sounds a lot like he's talking to the church. Um, and that's kind of a difficult point to consider what that might mean. And I've often related it kind of similar to what Mike said earlier about the, you know, the, the concept of receiving the person in, into the assembly, you know, for the sake of hearing the word. But also, John, what you're kind of talking about there, I guess would kind of fall to the idea of expedience. It's not, we might say it's not expedient for the church the church may have an authority in some way to, to shelter the individual, but maybe that's not the expedient way of, of accomplishing that. And you brought up the example of what if there's a dramatic circumstance where that becomes the expedient way. And I, and I think what we might have to recognize is a lot of times what we're really, we, we may not be talking about authority, but expedience. Um, yeah. So, so some of what I'm thinking about here is the idea is it's a lot more expedient, for example, and I'll say this carefully. You know, can the church arrange rides for members of the church to come to worship? Sure. But we think of the idea of having a church bus and we say, well, that's not, you know, that's not for the sake of picking up church members. That's probably not the expedient way to handle that, you know? And so yeah. a lot of times that the, a conversation, of course, we know that the buses get used for other things too, but I mean, the idea of, is that really the expedient way to handle that situation? And it's not. And, and hospitality, I think, falls a lot into the idea of, Whatever hospitality the church owes, 
oftentimes the expedient way is it is accomplished by the member. Now, that being said, I think verse 13 here is probably more to the member uh, almost almost entirely for the sake of the important idea, you know, that we're, you know, that we're rejoicing. Uh, all the different things he's talking about around this are things that are to the individual. But, yeah. but John, that's I, got, a- I got I got tied up when y'all were first talking about this, so I wasn't able to listen very well. I agree with you, Brian. I think the context here is individual application and how we deal with one another more so than a collective working of the congregation. But there would but, be an but, application, though. But a Hebrews 13.2 would kind of give us a sense that maybe there's a, a way where hospitality is is also relevant to the church as a whole. And as you said, in particular, it's the idea of, of towards the saint. That would be the, well, in particular for the church exclusively, but uh, that that would really be an important point. But as Mike said, maybe hospitality can fit into the idea of the the work of evangelism too. John or Tom, you've got a thought, don't you? Yeah, just, just real quick adding to this. Uh, one thing to understand about this verse is the way that we're discussing it, e- even if you're applying it, you know, like we've talked about roundabout to the congregation, uh, even though overall, I think it's the individual uh, and with, with the secondary, with kind of the way we as members of a congregation act, this still isn't a pattern or authorization for us to turn around and change what we do with our resources. It, it, it's, it's not authority for us to, to become a benevolent, uh, a general benevolent society or or to, you know, because uh, your initial question, kind of what you had in mind with that, you know, churches under the guise of hospitality are build sources of entertainment, not only for the members, but also for, for the community and so on. And, and even if we look at the hospitality and benevolence in this verse as what a church can do, it still doesn't give us the pattern. We've got the pattern in a whole lot of other places that limit what we can do as the collective. Tom, what you're saying is important. Uh, I often say that when we look at a passage and we have a question about it, the first thing we say is, what is it not saying? And we learn that by what other passages are saying. And so, Tom, you're right. Uh, we're, we understand this passage is not saying that the church is authorized, therefore, to, to you, you mentioned the social process. Some people would interpret that they would come up with their own understanding of hospitality around a social means. And secondly, the idea of, of what the church is authorized to do for the person who's not, who is not a Christian. And we already know what the, the word of God would reveal about those other things. So we could take those out of the equation and come up with a very reasonable answer here. And Tom, you, you gave us something important. Paul, you had something to add? Uh, just was going to say that if you look at the other co- commands, other instructions in this passage, it's pretty obvious that we're dealing with individual things. Uh, you see the phrases one another, and when you see the phrase you, it doesn't seem to be like you church, it seems to be like you Christian. Uh, the, and in the just in the list, it seems that it's dealing with it. Just yeah. in this particular one. It's, yeah. dealing- it, it's, it's important for us. Um, I'm going to suggest to you, it's going to become important for us as we get into Romans 13, when it raises some questions about uh, the relationship of the government the individual Christian versus the church. That's going to be an, I'm glad I'm not doing Romans 13. I don't know who is, but uh, uh, I'll let you guys answer that. Um, Guys, thanks. Thanks for really great comments uh, uh, on your thoughts on this. And I really appreciate that. We've had somebody who's been real patient waiting for us, I believe. Is that right, John? And they wanted to make a comment. Now we've arrived at verse 16. And uh, am I correct, John? Do we have somebody who's ready to make some comments? Yes, and let me get their uh, their audio directed into 
the chat or into the, the stream. Um, go ahead, Jared, say a few words, but make sure I can hear you. All right, are we good? Yeah, go ahead. You now I don't know, can y'all hear Jared as well? No. I don't no. All right, hang on just a second. Let me send it to Yeah, hang on just a second. Let me just one more moment. And all right, Jared, say something and then we'll see if my guys can hear you. All right. All right. This should be working now. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. All right. So in in verse 16, we see where it says, um, be of the same mind towards one another and do not set your minds on the high things. But we also see that in uh, Colossians 3, verses 1, 1 through 3 as well, where it's in verse 2 it says, set your minds on things above and not on the things below. We need to focus on the things that are waiting for us in heaven, not the things on this earth. You know, of course, with this whole coronavirus, people are worried more about that right now. But honestly, we need to be worried more about our spiritual life and our spiritual health rather than, you know, things that are causing people to worry and falling away from God. Because people have, you know, like, what should we do? What should we do? And I tell them, you got to pray to God. Is that one thing you can do right now? You know, Jared, that's a great comment. Um, me you know, it reminds me, I... Uh, can the Jared? Can you hear me? I don't know. Wing present heaven, and you know, don't focus on the big things that are on earth right now. So we need to focus more on the things on earth. All right, Brian, try it now. See if we can hear you. Jared, okay. I don't know if you can hear me. That was a great comment. One, uh, um, just recently, uh, somebody had made a point uh, about the idea. They saw a guy driving down the road. He had the face mask on, you know, in his car. So extra safe, and he was texting. So the irony was, here's a man who on one hand is very conscientious about one thing, but completely ignoring a very dangerous thing. And it reminds me of the idea of the person who's very concerned about catching coronavirus, but isn't at all concerned about their soul. Uh, you know, a 3%, 1% chance of catching this, 0.01% chance of it being fatal, but a 100% chance of one day standing before your God. You know, the, the irony is people do have completely backwards priorities. And and uh, there's a preacher here who rides a motorcycle. Uh, maybe some of you know Mark Dunnigan. And he he said somebody came to him once and they said, well, don't you know it's dangerous to ride a motorcycle? And he says, don't you know it's dangerous not to to know your God? And I always thought that was a that was a great answer. And that was a great point to consider that, that the most dangerous thing any man does is, is to walk without a knowledge of God. And I, I really get that sense from what you said there of having our mind on not on the things here on earth, but on the things that are in heaven, uh, which is a neat point. And in that sense, that kind of reverses it in verse 16 when he says, that means you should have your mind on one another. Uh, that, if, that if we're properly minded in the way we should be, our mind should be uh, to be of the same mind towards one another. Jared, I really appreciate that comment. Yeah. I mean, it's also a good thing that we need to do is, you know, stay in touch with our brethren. Um, where I attend in Phoenix, Arizona, we, you know, we have a step-by-step -step video every other Thursday, you know, we're still recording sermons Wednesdays and Sundays, you know, we're still making sure our members are still spiritually fed because we don't want people to, you know, fall away. We want to stay spiritually fed. And especially during the time of pandemic, 
you know, we still need to make sure we are still learning the word of God. You know, and it's an important thing that uh, churches are still, congregations are still mindful of the needs of the saints uh, towards that need. And, and we're fortunate to have technology that allows us to do that, for sure. Right. Um, so, so guys, let's kind of think about this, too. And uh, with verse 16, when he talks about being of the same mind toward one another, uh, how else might you word that? Or, or is there another way you might uh, mean it or apply that idea? Being of the same mind towards one another, what, what, should, what could that mean? There are dozens of passages that tell us that we are to be like-minded. And so to be like-minded is is just, and I do, I appreciate Jared's comments. He did a good job with with those comments. Great point. Uh, But we we need to be like-minded. At Colossians uh, 3, Paul tells, or rather Philippians chapter uh, 3, verse 5, Paul tells us that we are to let the mind of Christ dwell in us. Uh, Colossians 3, 16, uh, Philippians 2, 5, there I've got it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I said it one time and got myself in trouble for saying it because I didn't explain it. But I don't believe that the Christian has the right to think for himself. I believe that we have to think like Christ wants us to think. And that's going to alleviate a lot of man's desires. Just as Jared pointed out, our affection needs to be on things above, not on things of the earth. Uh, also Philippians 2, 1 through 2, as Thomas points out in our private chat. Same thing. There are so many passages that tell us that we have to be like-minded. Well, the only way we're going to be in unity about what we think and how we treat one another, be of the same mind one toward another, the only way we'll reach that unity is read, study, learn, and obey what God has said within his book. And that, that sounds like an old broken record, but that's precisely the only way we'll come to like-mindedness. Uh, yeah, I, I, great point. A great point. Tom, uh, you're muted. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, you, you know, when you think about it, we realize that we're individuals. And, and as individuals, there's going to be uniqueness in our, in our thinking and stuff like that. But there needs to be a common train of thought or a common, there needs to be a common way that we think together. Yeah, as Christians, you might use the expression, we need to be on the same page. And uh, uh, that, that's, a, that's extremely important. I, I, think, I think a lot of problems in the brotherhood could be resolved if we would work to the best of our ability to get on the same page with one another. And when we do disagree, if, if we would actually, with open minds, come to each other and kind of hash out where our differences are and and see if we can come to a like understanding, because if you're not like understanding, or if you're not like understanding with your brethren, you're going to have problems. You know, the word I was kind of fishing around for is the word unity uh, that yeah. comes out of this. So, you know, that that really is the idea. What is unity? Uh, being of the same mind and that. And but I, I like what Mike said, because it isn't my mind that we need to be of the same. We all need to have the mind of Christ. Um, and Tom, I know yeah. you were thinking of Philippians uh, 2, and, and that's exactly right, because Philippians yeah. 2 talks about having the mind of Christ. Yeah, I was going to say that verse number 2 in Philippians 2, Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
Can you get more united than that? No. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, I see in our Facebook, Brian Stamper's got a comment for us, uh, kind of relative to this. He makes the point to say fellowship that's not judgmental with love and kindness within uh, our words and deeds. You know, it's kind of interesting the concept of righteous judgment versus being judgmental. Uh, Brian, we could do we could we could spend a whole class time trying to delineate a very specific idea of when our mind goes one way or when we're observing righteous judgment and it's really hard and and the idea of love and kindness you know that's what he goes on to say he talks about being of the same mind uh he talks about you know this uh be verse 10 be kindly affectionate to one another brotherly love there's exactly what you're talking about the idea of a of a fellowship a relationship with other brethren that doesn't that has kindness and love at the heart of it and and fundamentally that concept of of righteous judgment if it's rooted in kindness and love, it's not going to cross the line into that dangerous mindset of, as you, you know, we use the word judgmental in a negative sense. And, and, and I think that that would be a great delineation for that. So, so right on, that's a, that's a great observation to that. Um, any other comments? Uh, I have a question here about the statement that he makes about, uh, oh, let me jump to it where he says, do what is, um, I've just lost my place. Verse 17, have regard for good things in the sight of all men, or, or you know, I think there are other translations render this, uh, respect what is right in the sight of all men. I always found that kind of a confusing passage, in part because, you know, at the beginning of this chapter, he says, well, don't be, don't be conformed to the world. But now he's saying, regard what's right in the sight of men. What do you guys think about that statement? What is it? What is the idea here? of having regard for the things that are right in the sight of men. I think that's actually a pretty complex idea. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that because at first it almost sounds like it's a contradiction. Don't respect what men think is right. Respect what God thinks is right. And now he says, respect what men think is right. What do you think? What translation were you referencing? I'm sorry? What translation were you referencing? Oh, so, uh, so um, I have two translations, the New King James is have regard for good things in the sight of all men. The New American Standard, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Okay, the, the wording sounded go, different the way you asked it. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, no. Let, let's go back to the King James and really throw a ringer in it. <laughs> the King James says recompense or repay to no man evil for evil. Don't, don't make a trade-off. Just because he did you wrong, don't do him wrong provide things honest in the sight of all men. And in, in reference to that, Paul's talking about the fact that when someone does you evil, do them good. It goes into the next verse or two. If we provide things honest in the sight of all men, one of those traits will be Matthew 7, 12. As you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them? Uh, we, we need to understand that golden rule, as we call it as children, needs to make application when we're adults. Look what Jesus did when people abused him. They, he still provided honesty to them, that which was right, that which was needful for their cause. When Paul was preaching, they liked to beat him to death. In fact, they thought they had killed him. Once he arises from that terrible beating, he gets up, goes right back into town, starts it all over again to preach the gospel. I keep coming back to that point, Brian. 
I'm convinced that it's not just the material things of this world that we need to be giving to one another. Those are important. I, I'm not I'm not selling those things short. But if what we provide for one another does not include the gospel of Christ, you could give them a million bucks and they'll still lose their soul. We we need the the, the honest things that mankind can provide for them. The most honest is the word of God. So that what Paul's telling these Romans, remember that they're a mixed group of both Jew and Gentile. The, the animosity that they grew up with throughout their lives is undoubtedly waning, but it's still there. And this is part of it. You need to be honest. If you don't think something's right, tell them it's not right. But if you think it is right, tell them why it's right. Give man a reason. When Paul said that we needed to be ready, Paul or Peter, I get them mixed up once in a while because they all wrote the inspiration. We need to, when, when we speak, we need to know how we ought to answer every man. And the way we answer them is not with a, well, I think, it's with God said. And there's the provision of all things honest. And it's not recompense evil for evil. For example, when I study with people that don't agree with me, and that's that's frequent, I don't ask them, what do you think? When they make a point to me, I ask them, where do you find that? What scripture backs that up? The same thing has to be not only to us, but from us. People get angry with me when I tell them the truth. But the answer and the honorable and the honest thing to do is tell them the truth. I believe that's what we're talking about in this verse. There's a great, a great comment, a great point. Anybody else have a thought about that? Uh, yeah, Brian, uh, you know, uh, I, I often define love, and this is a definition I learned a long time ago, Christian love, is caring enough to sacrifice for what is best. You know, you apply that to every relationship that you're in. Uh, the key to this verse, uh, the, that phrase there, is the word good things. You, you provide that which is honest or that which is honorable or that which is good. You let that factor in whatever you do. And, and, and that's the bottom line. And so that's not contradicting anything with, with uh, you know, uh, putting God over man and so on. We ought to look out for what's best where man is concerned. I, I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 9 or 9, uh, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. 19 through 23, I became all things to all men. I mean, uh, he didn't compromise. He even says it in the text. Uh, he did what was best where a man was concerned. And, and, and that's what Paul is challenging us to do here in Romans. Do the right thing where men are concerned, that which brings glory to God, but gives you an opportunity to open the door to them. So you know, it's actually kind of your guys are bringing out well the the complication of this passage, and the ideas that are that are here, uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, for the sake of time, I guess probably we should probably move forward. Uh, I just would love to say though that this is an interesting question when it comes to right now how churches have to deal with um, this current distress, the COVID nineteen situation, and you know respecting what's what men see as something that's right and you know in in a certain type of behavior and we're trying to work those things out too um i realize even that kind of loads a loads a gun so to speak to think about but it but it really is kind of a complicated statement uh that 
frankly, I probably should have gotten us uh, gotten us to uh, to get through all this. So I think we'll just go ahead and move on then. Um, I want yeah. to come yeah, to bring, bring in Brian Stamper's comment though. Um, no, let let we'll we'll move on for the sake of time. Really? Okay, um, right. Yeah. Uh, what are um what are some ways that people actually let's just go ahead and go to the last point in our questions there tom you had brought up something that's really interesting about the heaping coals of fire on the head and tom i want you to know that i always struggled with this passage right off the top uh years ago i remember when i first heard this passage i thought okay i've got it now my somebody upsets me and if i'm nice to them that'll just burn them up and i really want to zing them so this is the way to do it and and i didn't appreciate the fact that maybe i had misunderstood something about this so tom uh, give us some thoughts on this, okay? Yeah, and and, and obviously you did misunderstand. Uh, I, I mean, if you because because it should. I mean, in the very text, the, the text is talking about let God take care of things. You know, if there's something you can't, uh, if there's something you can't deal with, if there's ungodliness around you, let God deal with it. Uh, that uh, that's really the ultimate point. You you behave yourself. Uh, if you will, you live peaceably with all men, and you have regard for good things in the sight uh, of all men, and, and let God take care of the judging and so on. And so that's the ultimate point. And then, then, then he, uh, the point is made there. God said, "Or vengeance is mine; I will repay," referencing God. And then you have this verse here: "If your enemy's hungry, you feed him." That and and in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. The idea of that is when you do good to somebody else especially if they've mistreated you, there are a lot of times where that causes them to step back and rethink what they've done. So so it's not about you making them feel guilty. It's not about you saying, okay, I got him. I, I got him with reverse psychology. It's about him repenting. It, it's about him repenting and so on. And that's ultimately the point. And, uh, uh, but let's suppose he doesn't repent. Uh, he's going to stand before God's vengeance. And he's not going to be able to accuse you before God and say, well, this is what he did to me. So, so I, I mean, and, and of course, but it should never, ever, ever, ever be about getting even with somebody. Uh, it, it's about winning souls. That's a, that's a really good point uh, to consider that the idea is, you know, it's not about getting even. I'll suggest this, when I, years ago, as I said, I was a new Christian, I read this verse, I was really, really hot on it. And the preacher at the time pulled me aside, he says, well, Brian, he says, what if there's a different way to look at this? And he says, what if it's the idea that, that your enemy, that they are, uh, they're like a block of ice and, and that's their animosity towards you. They're just frozen up with that animosity. He says, when, you're, when you put those heaping coals, what does that do to that animosity? And I said, well, I guess it melts it away. And he says, well, well, maybe you might consider that the heaping coals aren't there to, to scald them or to burn them, but to melt away that, that adversity that's between you. And uh, after that, I started to appreciate the idea that it, that it simply could not mean the idea that God is saying, here's the best way to get revenge. Because he just, as you said, John, or Tom, he just told us what, uh, how our mind about revenge is supposed to be. So that's a that's a really great point uh, for us to consider. Anybody else have any other thoughts to bring to that? Tom, you you had mentioned uh, online behavior, and I thought that might just be worth a thirty second plug there, Tom. What what are you saying? Well, we're we're living in a, a online behavior has been a concern for a number of years, 
but it seems to be even more so the case now where there's there's some heated discussion even among brethren and 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 I, I'm on a couple of Facebook uh, preacher forums and so on and, and quite honestly I I get discouraged and frustrated at the demeanor of some of these preachers uh, don't misunderstand me when I say this I, I don't care what you believe on something because obviously I do but just the way that they're mistreating each other and, and, and the way that they're just pronouncing judgment on, on, on other people with the comments that they make. And, 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 and it's just like there's a lack of love there. You know, I, I've, I've, I've wanted to inject my own comments, but I haven't because it would, you know, I'd be jumping in the same mud pile. But I've wanted to say things to the effect of, I'm sure glad that when I stand before God in judgment that he's judging me and not my brethren. You know, so, yeah. Anyway, so that's my thoughts on that from an online standpoint. Be careful what you say. Online, you're still communicating. You know, Tom, I think what's interesting, and uh, let me just make a plug to this, because I think what you're saying is, is super important. I think it's about as uh, factoring for our life a truth as we can have is that a lot of times we may not even have a sense of animosity to the things that we're saying, but they may be received that way. And the idea, even going back to our comment about respecting what's right in the sight of men, that it, that if people see it as an, an as a statement of animosity, it might as well be a statement of animosity. That if it's perceived that way, then, then unfortunately it is that way, even if you didn't intend it that way. And that's something I think a lot of times very even wise, smart people don't appreciate that whenever I say something and it's received in a way that's uh, uh, that's vicious or judgmental or problematic, and especially in a context of online where there's no opportunity to clarify or things like that, that fundamentally I've not, uh, well, go back to that statement, I've not respected what's right in the sight of men. I've behaved in a way that is ungodly, even if that was not my intention. And Tom, you you gave us the answer what do we do well not saying anything is always going to be a smart move and that's an important point i think a lot of people need to consider a lot of preachers uh we know and we love the, a lot of preachers need to take that into consideration that we don't have to say something all the time sometimes we talk about the idea of the importance of correcting error but but we don't always have to say something especially when the the format of being online doesn't permit us to say things effectively yeah uh yeah and and there's so much to be said about i mean these the times that we're in right now are just they're just uncertain times people are confused people are scared people are frustrated people are dealing with things that they didn't think they were going to have to deal with and i want to tell you right now 90 percent, if not more of the churches among the brotherhood and and however far you want to take this they're doing the best they can they they are not flippantly making decisions and one church will make one decision and another church will make the total opposite decision both of them they've thought it through and they're doing the absolute best they can this just isn't the time for unloving uh, you know, unloving, scathing rebuke is either my way or or you're wrong. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't discuss things. You know that. It's just there's a time for everything. And 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 we need to be aware of how we're being perceived online. So I, I think uh, I think all of this is excellent. Uh, John brings us up, kind of says, you know, we think of verse 21 
don't be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. And John, you're right. That really effectively summarizes what we're seeing here is don't, you know, when evil is present before us, the natural man desires to respond in an evil way, but the righteous man does not. Um, let's go right back and let's go ahead and grab our chat question. I know we're, we're at our time and we actually have a lot of answers to this one. I really appreciate that. And so um, I don't know where we want to start here. Do we want to start in Facebook? Uh, we've got Dan who gave us, uh, actually, I've lost some of my answers here even. Um, I can't see them all in front of me. So I can, um, I can, you mean to start bringing them up for you? Yeah. Would you just start bringing them in for us? Uh, yeah. So our, just as a reminder, uh, our question was, can a Christian desire legal justice and obey the command not to seek vengeance. So what do you guys think? And I got some fantastic answers, the, uh, the, some real good points. So John, if you start bringing them in for us. All right, the first one comes from Dan Gatlin. He says, Paul did in Acts chapter 16, verses 35 through 40. So Dan reminds us of, of how it was that Paul uh, went before the, the city in Philippi and you know basically they had, they had wronged him uh, by unlawfully imprisoning him, and he had used his, he had he had brought forth accusation against them. So right there is a great example. Dan, you, you, we could stop there and say, hey, we have an authorized example about that. But I know a few of our comments kind of go into an explanation of why that might be too. So, uh, and by the way, we might also go to his use of his Roman citizenship in order to defend himself as well. Those would be things that would give us that. Uh, John, go to our next phone. All right. Our next one comes from Rhonda. Uh, she says, justice is, justice is not the same thing as vengeance. Um, she says, vengeance is the Lord's. Justice is rightly, is rightly administered or ad administration of the law, where vengeance is attempting to punish the other person. Rhonda, you're exactly right. Um, and important, Rhonda, because that really seems to be the theme of the passages that we didn't get to yet. Chapter 13, in those first eight verses, he's going to elaborate the concept of the, of the, of the right of the government to seek justice on these things. It's not vengeance, it's justice. And, and Rhonda, you said it exactly right. The, the distinction here is in justice, <coughs> excuse me, is in, don't worry, I'm, this is a sanitized broadcast, so if I'm coughing at you, you're okay. <coughs> But uh, the idea is that he's going to go on to elaborate on that very point. And that really is the discernment. And I see actually Gregor Hinkling's also got a comment that comes to that. But I think we had one more or two more questions or comments out of Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. The, well, let's go ahead and bring in Gregor's if it's okay, because I've got it queued up now. Yeah, because Gregor's relates to it. Gregor says it's justice versus punishment for evil. It's one thing to require justice for a crime. It's another to file for an earthly judgment it affects only you is it earthly greed if it protects others yes uh so gregor you kind of you kind of come down to the very fine line on splitting that idea and trying to say which one is it that uh effectively defines those things for us so that was a good point uh, the idea is maybe there is a point where if it's just for me if, if it's not a matter of anything other than my greed that seeks to bring those things about then maybe i do need to consider something and that's a great Great point, Gregory, yeah. an important point to consider. I've got another one for us. Right, this one comes from Dan Gatlin off Facebook. And, and he, Dan expands upon the, the earlier uh, passage he submitted. Paul used his Roman citizenship on at least two occasions and received legal protection. Chapter 16 and chapter 25, then when he appealed to Caesar. There was no vengeance with him. He was seeking 
uh, to stop an injustice. Excellent, excellent point. Okay. Um, and again, the idea of vengeance is, is a very different thing than the idea of justice. Um, if I'm not mistaken, do we have one more comment in Facebook? Let me see. We have a comment. I, I, maybe not. Maybe not. It was a fellowship comment, but, but yeah, that, that might have been earlier. Yeah, we got that one earlier, we, and I responded to the next comment already. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. Um, yeah, well, Greg, Gregor commented, but this was on verse 17. Y'all talked about that. Did you see Brian's uh, comment about seven minutes ago in Facebook regarding anger? I don't see that, no. Okay. It doesn't relate to the question that was posed, but it's, we can go ahead and bring it in because it would go back yeah. to our discussion here. Uh, Brian says, anger is one of the seven deadly sins, as you know, oftentimes you hear it expressed. So anger is like picking up a burning coal with the intention of throwing it at another person. We are the ones who get burned in the process. You know, it's interesting with anger. Um, we The Bible talks about, like in Ephesians chapter uh, four and chapter five it talks about the the anger that we're supposed to put away from ourselves and you know the anger of man James would say in James one doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God anger itself an emotional response isn't the sin it's what we're doing with anger that oftentimes is the sin yeah. and certainly you describe the idea of picking up the stone I always think that's a great way of considering forgiveness forgiveness is somebody threw a rock at you and hit you forgiveness is choosing not to pick up the stone to throw it back and that would be a, a nice application of that too and that's basically the last one. I think all the others you've either answered online or in our discussion. So, yeah. So, so we'll wrap up here. We had so many comments we couldn't bring them all in, and we're I, I can't say enough how appreciative I am of that. Uh, when when you're participating like that, we really are grateful for this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Brian, I appreciate it. You, you did a good job with chapter twelve. Uh, I'm gonna try to do thirteen next week. So. Um, you, you, you set a bar that's a little bit higher than what I'm used to reaching for, so. <laughs> but I appreciate it. All righty, well, that brings us to the end of our discussion today. There is so much more um, that we could say on this particular passage. Um, I don't normally like to talk about, you know, someone having a favorite Bible passage, but one of my favorites would be Romans 12, 9 through 21, because that tells us how to live as Christians in dealing with one another and with other people in the world. And it's very straightforward, very simple. Can't argue against it. It's hard to be misinterpreted, if you would. Um, very, very straightforward. All righty. Well, that brings us to the end of our study. It's now 12.05, so we invite you to join us again. Uh, we'll, we'll do this again next week, and we will be in Chapter 13. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like to send us via email, feel free to do that. You can send them to questions at truthfactorlive.com. It's questions at truthfactorlive.com. We'd definitely love to hear from you. But let's all plan to be back here again next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's 12 noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.